Canucks Central Wednesday, Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah. We are a presentation of your local Grip Auto entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. It's an overrated, underrated Wednesday. Something that uh, came up last week on overrated, underrated, uh, Sat. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Royale with cheese. Oh, 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 okay. I have a question for you now that you brought that up. Okay. Did you indulge in I one did. last night? I did. Oh, I yes. Did. Love it. So last night, yeah. as we were leaving the studio, yeah. <laughs> Reach turns to me and says, you know what? I've been really craving a Royale with cheese. Maybe yep. it's the night. Maybe tonight's the night. Maybe tonight is it. So I, um, after the show finished, I got, I got the call up. From uh, from a friend to go spare on the North Shore. Oh, oh, nice. League. Oh, awesome. Uh, good group of guys. Uh, the Blue Devils, um, but they wear red, so that was interesting. Um, I I, uh, I I probably shouldn't be playing 19 plus hockey anymore. Just just throwing that out there. Speed was a little bit uh, of an issue for uh, for my old legs, but um, made through the game all right. Starving on the way home. Oh yeah, starving. I was like, man. Those golden arches are looking pretty <laughs> good right now. Too tempting. <laughs> now, when you rolled up on the drive drive through, yeah, okay. Uh, when you rolled up on the drive through, did you pull out the Royale with cheese <laughs> to see if they could would understand it? I, I did not. No. Uh, I should have. I thought about it, but I was like, I mean, what do you have to lose? I'll take a Royale with cheese and be like, eh? what? What are you talking about? I mean, uh, a movie that was made <laughs> probably well before you were born. Yes. But you never know. Sometimes you you run into the the kids that are movie buffs, working at Mickey D's, and they'll like recite the line right back. Man, to you. I'm a huge Tarantino fan. Of course, I'll get you a Royale with cheese. As someone that worked at McDonald's as a teenager, if you pulled up and said that, I would have been <laughs> super confused. Yeah, people probably like you repeat put- that, please. <laughs> uh, would sir, you have we- messed with the burger if somebody said that? Or no, 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 no. no. But I would have been confused the whole time. <laughs> Josh would have been like, "Sir, this is not an Arby's. <laughs> <laughs> sir, this is a McDonald's." <laughs> Uh, Royale with cheese um, is a quarter pounder with cheese for the very good. For those that are wondering what the heck that is. Now, did you enjoy it? Uh, I did. It is, it is it is actually underrated. I will say I, that. I, been saying. Yeah. Been saying. I mean, it's just a it's kind of like a basic cheeseburger, but the 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 beef is a lot bigger than what you would get in a Big Mac. It's right? meatier. Yeah. It's meatier. A little bit juicier. It's good. Good. All right. Well, um, uh, I have a handheld submission for underrated, overrated coming up uh, a bit later as well. Okay, those may have seen it on social media be mentioned. But uh, I have one coming up. <laughs> overrated, underrated. Uh, you can get in on it. Uh, we'll do it after six o'clock tonight, and always find it on the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Uh, subscribe, li- leave a review. We do appreciate it. A lot of buzz coming out of our Bruce Boudreaux interview from yesterday, which you can also find on the podcast, of course. There was a lot in there, and I know uh, a lot of the different shows today on 650 talked about some of their takeaways from from hearing Bruce Boudreaux speak, and he was, you know, when he spoke last week at the Zoom Avail, with, when he was just finishing mm. off of 18, right before getting to the 19th hole, he was on 18 and a half at that point, and talking about, you know, I'm going to work with the analytics team, and you know, work on some of the things that, that Jim wants uh, the team to be better at. And yesterday he was less forthcoming um, and more serious Bruce, would yeah. we say? Yeah, he was, he was a more serious Bruce. I'm going to start short, uh, I'm going to stop short of saying take no prisoners, Bruce. Yeah. 
pretty close. Yeah, he was. You know, it, it was it was different. Uh, yeah. There was a different tone there. Um, he didn't necessarily budge on the whole. We relied on Demko too much. Um, knows that uh, the the exits and the entries and all of that are great, but at the same time, he can tell when when his team is playing poorly and it generally matches up with the analytics. But this is always about more than just the basics of shot shares and controlling scoring chances, those types of things. Those are obvious. I mean, what's always been funny to me about the whole, like, well, I mean, we're long away from it now, but the, the course he debates at is like, Basically, since the beginning of time in the NHL, we've looked at the shot chart and looked at the scoreboard and been like, oh, they got out 37 to 22. I guess I know who was the better team that night, <laughs> you know, and, but somehow Corsi is something that nobody can really understand, right? Like those are the basics. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's so rudimentary. Yes. And and that stuff, it's it's more about... Kind of what Rutherford mentioned to some degree. And the analytics, and I think what people sometimes forget, it's not like where you say, like, apply these analytics and you'll be better. Analytics kind of tell you about what's going on. Yes. That's what we're saying here. When people say apply analytics, it's looking at, okay, on your exits, how many of your exits are controlled exits? Yeah. And how many controlled exits do successful teams have? Usually a lot. But it's about having control possession in the offensive zone. Yeah. How do you come by that? The teams that have the most success possess the puck more as they enter out of their own zone and have it as they enter into the offensive zone or retrieve it in the offensive zone. So, I mean, I think people get caught up in analytics. Analytics, all analytics tells you is what's going on. Yes. That's all it really tells you. And when it tells you things are not happening well, it's up to you to apply hockey thoughts to improving it, to bringing better players or X's and O's to make it better. But analytics, it's not like you just apply analytics and make things better. Analytics is just giving you information about what's happening. Exactly. And you watch some of these playoff games and and, and really focus. You know, when you're watching Carolina tonight or even uh, the Battle of Alberta, especially the Calgary Flames, like watch how many short passes they have uh, in their breakouts. Um, You know, one thing you'll see a lot with Calgary is the winger on the blue line near the boards will just have a little touch pass and there's mm-hmm. a player streaking through to create speed through the neutral zone. Just like, yeah. you know, little details that you don't often see the Canucks really execute, whether it was with Boudreaux or with Travis Green. But at the times they did, yeah, we were applauding it so much. I mean, remember that one play specifically? Uh, it was, I forget which game it was. But it was a two-on-one chance Garland and Pedersen had, and it yeah. happened because Jason Dickinson made a touch pass, just like just you like mentioned, that, yeah. off the half wall in the middle of just by the red line, which goes straight to Pedersen, creates a two-on-one opportunity. That was a super quick, fast play. That was just about what you mentioned, being available for a pass, and then you hit the oncoming forwards, going through the neutral zone with speed, and that's how you are able to generate a scoring chance going the other way. Yeah. But how does that happen? Like you mentioned... One nice clear exit to a guy who gets it, and then a quick touch pass to a guy going in speed. You're not a fast hockey team, but that's a quick play that makes you go fast. There's there's so many different ways to execute this. Uh, you know the, the 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 power plays. You know the drop pass. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially when you watch Edmonton, right? Why is Connor McDavid always the last one out of the D zone? Because he's the guy waiting for the drop pass. They want to get him the puck in full flight as he's going through the neutral zone and gaining the offensive blue line. It's just little things like this 
that you can work into your game to create more speed, even if you don't have speed as a, a, a tremendous trait of your roster, mm-hmm. right? That's that's one thing coaches can do. And coming out of that conversation with Boudreaux yesterday and some of the musical chairs that are happening, not just in the Pacific Division, but across the NHL, now that we know Boudreaux's coming back, Sat, where does he rank amongst Pacific Division head coaches? Very high. Yeah. At the end of the day, what do you, what do you want from a coach? To get the most out of your group. Mm-hmm. Boudreaux got the most out of the group. Yeah. I don't care how you come by that. Just how do you get there? And this is a discussion we've oftentimes had uh, about football. And a guy like Pete Carroll, for instance, he has a very specific philosophy on how football should be played. And many think it's very archaic. But his greatest strength has been able to shorten games and get the most out of what he has. Yeah. And... He gets buy-in into the system he has. Now, maybe it's somewhat imperfect, but people buy into what he's doing. And all that matters is that buy-in that allows your group to perform at the height of their abilities or slightly above their abilities. Do you have to be the best X's and O guy for that to happen? No. I don't care how you come about that. So to me, Boudreaux ranks really high in the Pacific Division. This is... I've always really been a big Boudreaux fan. You know, Whether he completely adopts analytics or not. The guy just flat out gets results, okay? That is, at the end of the day, what you want. Got to Washington, got results. Went to Anaheim, got results. Went to Minnesota, got results. Came here to Vancouver, getting results. That's that's it. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line that every NHL team wants. Of course, they'd love their process to be better, but bottom line is, how do you get results? Where are you getting results? Are you getting results? And Boudreaux does that. If there is, you know, an X's and O's part of this that Boudreaux can improve in, as Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin talked about last week in their end-of-season news conferences and Rutherford spoke with us, I think that's got to come not just from Boudreaux, Sat, but the support staff. Everything this front office has talked about is being more of a collaboration, mm-hmm. right? So that's the assistance. Who is Boudreaux leaning on to develop wrinkles in their game, team to team, depending on opponent, how you can break them down, where are their areas of weakness, and what can we do to achieve that? Ultimately, those are things that get the best out of your coaching staff and get the most results. So how much of that is going to be a collaboration? We saw when Brad Shaw took over the penalty kill, instant turnaround, right? He took it over, really, from everybody we've talked about, integrates some of the numbers, the analytics, into how he sets up that PK, did it in Columbus, obviously did it here in Vancouver, and it ended up getting way better results than what they saw at any point during the, the the early part of the season. Yeah. So the collaboration of it all. So yeah, if there is some areas that you'd like to see Boudreaux improve in, well, that's going to be a test of how you set up your support staff to pick up in those spots. It shouldn't all come down to the head coach, but when it comes to Boudreaux, he's got to be high on the list of coaches in the Pacific Division. You know, if, if Barry Trotz, who... Uh, as was going through Twitter today, that some people seeing him 
having maybe dinner in, in Las Vegas after he interviewed with the Winnipeg Jets. So maybe Barry is eventually on the road to Sin City. We've all been there. And I think immediately you would put him at the top of the list. Coaches in mm-hmm. the Pacific Division. But right now, Vegas doesn't have a coach. So that's mostly just speculation. If you go down the line, Daryl Sutter's got to be number one of coaches in the Pacific Division. I wasn't sure what to expect from Sutter when he came back to the Calgary Flames. But it's pretty obvious that his style, the way he gets results, still resonates even in the, the NHL all these years later, going back to his 2004 Flames that had Jerome McGinley and a bunch of guys yeah. and those LA Kings teams that you know, maybe they didn't have the greatest of regular seasons, but as Canucks fans will know, they had a really strong way of playing. And that showed in that first round series in 2012 and eventually they win two cups with Daryl Sutter the guy's proven he has still got it he has not passed it even though he clearly is a bit of an old school guy and you know and it's funny because you see people kind of responding and kind of talk you know because we mentioned the Pete Carroll thing and say well Pete Carroll's only had one Super Bowl and you know Daryl Sutter you know he it's been a long time since he had playoff success yada yada it's more about their records overall I mean these are guys that very seldom have losing seasons why does that happen? Because they're able to get the most out of their groups for the most part. Now, um, uh, you know, I mentioned the Pete Carroll thing. I, it's very the very end of his tenure potentially and success rates. But the point is, it's just about how you get your group to play for you and play to to the best of their abilities. Essentially, yeah, that's all that matters when I'm trying to evaluate a head coach. I used to be so into like, oh, your style really matters, and we talked about this a lot. Like, hey, your style matters. As long as you're having success, your style matters as long as you're not having success. Because when you're having success, your playing style doesn't really matter. Outside of what happened with this team, because they missed the playoffs and they're trying to build towards something. But had this team made a deep playoff push and they had some cap space, do you think Rutherford would be sitting here talking about structure this offseason? Um, probably not. Not as much. So I think those things do matter as well to, uh, at the end of the day. And when you're in a position that this Canucks team is at, where they have a specific amount of money they can spend, and there's only so much they can do, those things become a lot more emphasized. But that's why having a guy like Boudreaux, even if you are up against the cap, I feel like this team will perform at the top of their abilities, even with him. Like I think I, have, I don't have much doubt that next year, this team is going to reach its potential, whatever that potential is. Maybe it's an 85-point team. Right. Maybe it's a 95-point team. We, we'll see what, the, what it looks like at the end of the season. But I feel confident that he's going to do that. I feel confident that Daryl Sutter, no matter what he has, will get the most out of his group next season. Who's the third coach that comes in in that division right now? And could it be Top McClellan? I don't know who else it would be. I'm not putting Jay Woodcroft there. No, it's too soon to say. Yeah. And Barry Trotz would go right up the list, but he hasn't signed with anybody yet. Dallas Akins. He's done a good job. But... He's done a good job in Anaheim, but... Yeah, results have been suboptimal for Dallas Akins at the NHL level. Uh, so I'm not throwing him in there. You know, when I think of what else is going on in the, in the division, San Jose Sharks, Bob Bugner, like, mm. no, it's no, hard, it's hard to say. I mean, you could, we could be, this team could be in a position next year where Boudreaux is the best coach in this division. Yeah. Because if Johnny Goudreau leaves the Calgary Flames mm-hmm. this summer, yep. 
they're still going to be a good team and they'll probably be out there trying to do some some things but is that team going to be nearly as good as they are this year no there's no, there's no way. I mean, I can see Calgary next year without Goudreau make some moves or whatever and they end up being like a mid-90 point team. Different discussion all of a sudden around that The interesting thing about Calgary is the Battle of Alberta begins tonight. Like They're kind of... Um, their window is kind of closed mm-hmm. after this year. Yeah. I mean, it's not fully closed, but they're going to have a difficult juggling act. It's a short window. For all the talk about where Calgary's at... Yeah, and how they turn it around, and what lessons you can learn. And we talked about finding the Shillingtons, yep. for instance, and having some guys that fit your coach that they've added in for Daryl Sutter that has the team kind of going over. But as far as who you want to aspire to be, you don't aspire to be the Flames. It's more about learning lessons about how they turn things around and, and supplemented a coach who's having success and all those sort of things. But this is a team with a limited window. They have a very inefficient salary cap picture, yes. right? You know, like they, they've had Goudreau on a fantastic contract for a lot of years. The, Monaghan hasn't lived up to his deal. Uh, Kachuk, you had him on the three-year, seven million per, and didn't get real results until this year. But now all those guys are coming due for raises. You had Backlund on a long, like on a pretty good contract for a lot of years. Tanev has exceeded expectation. Anderson is on a great contract. Hannafin's on a great contract. But look at how many inefficient contracts mm-hmm. they have too, right? How often are you going to be able to spend what they're spending on your third pair with Zadorov and Goodbranson? They have Milan Lucic on their bottom line. You know, spend $5 million there. Like, Lucic has played well because we don't expect much from him anymore. But how long, especially when you're paying Goudreau and Kachuk and you're going to have to give a healthy raise to Manjapani, how long can you live with Milan Lucic making that kind of cake on your bottom line. Well, and he has one more year left on his contract beyond this season. I mean, the Lindholm deal is a really good one at 4.85 the next two. But Mangiapane, you mentioned him. I mean, what type of money is he going to get paid? And Chris Tanev just finally got injured, and we'll see where he's at and everything. But how does he age as time goes on? And this also kind of comes down to, for as much as we talk about coaching, a lot of it really does depend on your roster as well. As long as you have baseline head coaches. I think a, a big part of this too, because if you go through the list of coaches who, who have had success in the postseason, there are a lot of coaches who have had success that you wouldn't consider great coaches. Right. It's essentially, do you not? how do you not get in your own way? Um, <laughs> coaching, overrated or underrated? <laughs> we'll talk about that. I mean, you know, some would say it's overrated because it gets in the way. Yes. You know, and in football, the term oftentimes is overcoming coaching. One, because of bad tu- uh, tuition. I mean, sorry, uh, instruction sometimes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's because it's just over-instruction. Well, you, you hear a lot of baseball guys say, a manager can't uh, win you a ton of games, but he can lose you a lot of games. Uh, is it the same in hockey where there is uh, a lot of detail and system play that goes into it? Uh, maybe we'll get to that in uh, overrated, underrated a little bit later on in the show. Uh, how good is the Colorado Avalanche? Are the Colorado Avalanche? Oh, I mean, uh, they're terrifying. They have it issues. was only a three-two overtime win, and everybody in the hockey world is like, "Man, who is stopping Colorado this year?" I mean, I, I, I part of me looking at I me, mean, I watched the game, but just looking at the score itself and and what the differentials were before overtime and everything, I was like, you know, it kind of supports my argument about the Blues being dangerous. Yeah, and to some degree, it, so this is where I'm still not like, oh, they're completely inevitable. They're the Thanos of the National Hockey League. They're going to get... I mean, I, I don't quite feel that about them because 
some of the things that did happen last night, there are chances they will give up with their zone play. Mm-hmm. If you get offensive zone time against them, you can make them pay. You saw that at times in that game. The problem is getting that zone time against them because yeah. they have the puck all the time. And that's the biggest challenge against Colorado. I think you can work them a little bit, but is is that going to give you enough offense to take away from the amount of offense they will generate? Yeah. <laughs> and Bennington stood on his head yesterday. Bennington made over 50 saves. Uh, was incredible. Definitely more of uh, Stanley Cup. Jordan Bennington than he was uh, Jordan Bennington versus the Vancouver Canucks in the bubble. I, I mean, I look at Colorado and I just see about as close to a perfect team that you can get in the salary cap era. Is that going to win them a cup? Mm. I mean, <laughs> no guarantees in the NHL, right? They look like this last year when they swept the Blues, gave uh, the Vegas Golden Knights the business in game one of their second round series, and then the script totally flipped. Yeah. And Vegas started controlling play in that series, and it was just a tide that they couldn't get overturned. Colorado is kind of, you know, for all that people talk about Toronto in their first round losses, Colorado has been that in the second round, right? Where they can't seem to get over that hump. This looks like it will be the year because I just don't see a team that is, unless they get injured, significant injuries, which nobody wants to see that. I just don't see how you beat Colorado if you are the St. Louis Blues and Calgary or Edmonton definitely the Edmonton Oilers will be very up against it should that be the next round of the playoffs there is just way too much talent way too much speed way too much offense especially from the back end Mm -hmm. on that team that you've got to be able to score four to five goals every any given night to beat that team that's how good they are and the only other hope you have is your goaltender just absolutely playing out of their mind. Yeah, and I will say this. Is that the way Colorado's going to play in every game this series? After having the layoff they had first game in round two? Like, yeah. are they going to be playing at that pace? Mm. I mean, I say all seven games. I mean, this might be over in five or four. But is that, is that what, what they're going to look like every game? Yeah. I don't know if that's going to be the case. I mean, they had a lot of juice last night. A lot of juice. The rest certainly helped. Yeah. I mean, they were a little rusty with finishing chances. I think that played a part into it. And maybe they're even more deadly. Is you there don't a team that's physical enough to like slow them down, though? I think the Blues can get in their way more than they did last night. If yeah. if, if there is a team, and maybe that's the test. If, if they can't do it, the only other team that could is perhaps Tampa. And maybe that's a discussion to have about what what's the best... Cup final. Like, if you're a hockey fan, what do you want to see? Tampa, Colorado's the obvious choice. Isn't it? It's got to be. You want to see Tampa, Carolina? No. Rangers? Tampa, Rangers? Or Colorado, Rangers? No. It's got to be Tampa, Colorado. You don't want to see one of the Alberta teams. Especially with Kucherov playing like he did last night. Yeah, I mean, do you want to see Edmonton or Calgary in the Cup final? I mean, I don't really care for it as much. I mean, McDavid being there, at least he's the best player in the game and in the spotlight. I think that's great for the game. And yeah. There are benefits to it, despite the fact that it's Edmonton in a small market. But having the best players, ne- it's never a bad thing for your sport to have the best player in the game in the final. That's true. Dan Richo, Satyar Shaw, what would your be? What would your ideal Cup final be? And uh, is Colorado inevitable to get there? Six fifty, six fifty on the Dunbar Lumber text line. If you are listening live, 
To those that are, we appreciate it. To those listening on demand, we appreciate you as well. It is Canuck Central coming up. We've got Kevin Woodley set to join us, and he'll go into something Jim Rutherford said on the DFO Rundown about a specific goalie tactic he doesn't agree with in today's game. We'll get the goalie guru's take on that next. This is Canuck Central. Canuck Central is a presentation of your local Grip Auto entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. Coming up an hour or two of the show, Colby Armstrong will join us, as well as Scott Wheeler will dive into uh, some draft thoughts with Scott Wheeler. So be looking forward to that. Kevin Woodley uh, going to join us here in a couple of moments. Uh, some thoughts coming in at the Dunbar Lumber text line. Riley and Maple Ridge listening live. The best finals would have been Toronto, Colorado, and I hate the Leafs. Just because of the pace back and forth? Yeah, it would be uh, would be pretty, pretty fast. Yeah, it would be. I, I do still think Tampa's a more fun team to watch than Toronto. Why? Because I appreciate their game so much of how they play. I mean, for a team that's as talented as they are and how they can just play different styles and they can adjust and they can go anywhere you want to go, I think that they make for a great opponent against anybody in the playoffs. I mean, have they played a boring series? Mm, not, not really. When the Islanders, but that, even that was like intriguing by how close and, and physical and fast it was going both ways without goals getting scored. The, uh, the Lightning are like the poster child now of um, losing makes you better. <laughs> yeah, they've become that, haven't yeah. they? They've learned to lose. They've learned. They've lost so many different ways. They've now learned to win in so many different ways. Uh, that that uh, sweep at the hands of the Columbus Blue Jackets just completely flipped the mentality oh. of that team. But I mean, just the way they played. I mean, against Florida last, they were really <laughs> they were really good, <laughs> man. Really good. Florida wasn't very good. <laughs> no, and that's maybe a problem with yep. them a bit. But I mean, so if worse comes to worse, yeah. They can play to Dallas style, but they have like all the superstars to do it. I mean, what is that? What kind of get out of jail free card is that? You have Vasilevsky, you yep. have all these talented players, and if they want to, they can play any system, any trap system, and, and keep a super low event. Well, Game Seven against the Leafs is a perfect yeah. example of how they, you know, got in front of shots, got in, got into shooting lanes, didn't give the Leafs, you know, too many Grade A scoring chances. Just stuff on the outside. Just keep it onto the perimeter. Uh, it's you know, the Lightning are a masterclass in in uh, in building a. A great hockey team. All right, let's bring in our next guest. And that's why they're two-time defending cup champs, so it's pretty obvious. Uh, Kevin Woodley now joining us, uh, the goalie guru, NHL.com and In Goal Magazine. How you doing, Woodley? I'm good. You know what else happens as the playoffs go on for the Tampa Bay Lightning? What's that? Andre Vasilevsky tends to find his game. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, that. And, well, and that's yeah. the thing. Like, honestly, guys, like, uh, th- this ain't the first year he's kind of been mm-hmm. very average or meh or just not the Vasilevsky we all assume he's going to be early in the playoffs. And I kind of said it as that series went on. You're worried if, you, you know, whether it was game six or game seven, um, you know, you, you sort of need to put him away early. And then he tends to get better in the second round and on. So that's a bit of a scary thought because the reality is um, he wasn't very good. Like he's still in negative numbers overall for the playoffs, even after that game one. 
Um, but he really wasn't very good in that first round uh, up until maybe game seven. And even in game seven, I thought he got the benefit of obviously, you know, I'm not saying it wasn't tall, but in way goal, you know, somewhat uncaring on just Tavares. Hey, Kevin, we're going to try and uh, reconnect. Your uh, your phone's cutting out a little bit, so uh, we'll reconnect with uh, with Kevin Woodley here in a moment. It, he's so right, though. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes goaltending does come down to timing, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe Grant Veer wasn't uh, always the, the greatest <laughs> goalie of all time, but he always made the biggest save at the biggest moment. Yeah, and it's it's easy to say sometimes. I mean, the reason the Grant Veer example matters because he did it in the past and he was playing on such a good team that it was okay for him to you know yeah. have a few stinkers all he needed to do was hey just when it matters shut it down he was capable of doing so but not everybody is capable no. of doing that well Vasilevsky wasn't incredible against the Leafs until overtime of game six <laughs> yes <laughs> you know he played pretty ordinary for most of that series no it wasn't he was better than Jack Campbell, but not a ton better than Jack Campbell. And then game six, he completely changed that. And yeah. game seven, he made the big saves when Tampa did have some breakdowns, and that completely flipped the series. And it's why he's the best goalie that's still remaining in the Stanley Cup mm-hmm. playoffs. You maybe make the argument for Jacob Markstrom, but what's Shesterkin? I'm still taking Vasilevsky. Like you, yeah. you, you make me draft the goalies. I'm taking Vasi first, just because of the track record and everything. I mean, yeah. just the year Shesterkin's had. If he's able to play at that level, then I mean, he wasn't great in the first round outside of games, you know, yeah. six and seven. He really found it. So far tonight, he's been stout. You know, it's early against the Carolina Hurricanes, but that, I'd say he's the only guy as good as Markstrom can be. I, I think it's essentially either. Um. Vassy or Shesterkin that can find it. And Markstrom's really good. He really, really is. But I don't know if he's at the same level as those two guys. We could uh, we could have a moment where the best three goalies in the league are all Russian. Shesterkin, the way Sorokin played at the end of the year with the Islanders, and obviously Vasilevsky. And that's quite the departure of where Russian goaltending was at about over a decade ago. Yeah. There's so much talk about it. I mean, Habi Bulin's like, the only guy. <laughs> yeah, it was like the the Bulin wall. Uh, Nabokov, who could never get it done in big games. Um, remember Andre Medvedev in some of those yeah. uh, World Junior Series, but he never amounted to anything really at the NHL level. So uh, there was just always a bunch of guys um, and not a ton of great shakes when it came to the talent. That you would have hoped for. No, and it was it was essentially a lot of the Czech goalies for a while that were some of the best European goalies. All the obviously with Dominic Hasek. Remember Roman Czechmanic? Yeah, who had like a what was it one or two year spell or two or three year spell being really. He was good? like a really poor man's uh, Dominic Hasek <laughs> because it, like the the style was so unorthodox. Yeah, you were like, what's going on here? But he he found a way to make saves for a few years. Uh, as we uh, try to reconnect with Woodley. The NHL has updated offer sheet compensation for the upcoming offseason sat, and this is, and will continue to be, I would imagine, the most underutilized form of player acquisition in the NHL. Yes. The offer sheet. We talk about it every offseason. Is it going to happen? And hey, we've had a couple in the last few years, Sebastian Ajo, with the Montreal Canadiens, and then Yasperi Kokinemi with the Carolina Hurricanes. And Kokinemi did end up going 
And now Carolina has doubled down on their big bet and has spent a bleep ton of money keeping Esperi Kokinemi happy. But I'll digress from there. It's not so much at the top of the spectrum when it comes to offer sheet compensation, which we tend to focus on. It's more at the bottom end. Yeah. Like, can you find, is there an RFA out there that's worth paying that has no offer sheet compensation? Is there guys in that third round range Mm -hmm. that make sense for an offer sheet, especially now where so many teams are right up against the cap? Well, and that's where it comes down. And even $2 million per season, that can be too rich for some teams. And the guys to target are the players who have not yet established themselves as NHLers or everyday players that a team may bulk at paying $2 million per year for two or three years. They're like, man, not only are we capped out, we have to find a way to carve out cap space, but we're not even sure this guy's going to be able to do that. Yeah. And that's how you maybe prize somebody away. But oftentimes what ends up happening is that guy gets traded before anybody makes an offer sheet. Those players end up getting dealt for you know a third-round pick or something or sometimes a second-round pick, and you found a way to get around that. I mean... Not that anybody was going to offer sheets to Van Berchi specifically, but that's the type of guy that you were talking about with the Calgary Flames at the time. They knew that, hey, that's a kind of low range. We probably won't match it, but well, let's see what we can do when they trade him for a second to Vancouver. That's oftentimes what does end up happening. But with the reluctance to trade those picks now and with teams maybe not doing teams' favors, I would really explore this. And, I mean, we talk about Toronto... Um, being one of those teams that has to be, make changes this offseason, are they going to be able to afford to pay some of their guys on the fringes that might be offer sheet eligible? Timothy Lilligren, yeah. Pierre Engvall types, for instance. Would they match those offer sheets? It's very debatable, right? Uh, I, I would imagine that they want to keep a guy like Lilligren who played really well for them, but hey, they didn't really play him as much in the playoffs. They didn't trust him in the playoffs, and they wanted a bit of a harder player in in Justin Hall to take those minutes. There is so many options that you can look at. Uh, Obviously, Engvall is a really interesting one with Toronto as well. Vegas Golden Knights. They are up and well above the cap already. How about a right shot center in Nick Waugh? You know, yeah. like what's he going to get paid? Is it more of a second round draft pick type of compensation for him with the way that he's played? A big center that can really fill out in your bottom six and has some speed to him. I like there's a there's a whole list of RFAs that you could definitely look at. It just doesn't often happen from a specific offer sheet standpoint. I just had a flashback to one of our post game shows late in the season, because we had somebody call in on a post-game show, I mentioned Nicholas Roy as somebody that the Canucks should go after an offer sheet or try to trade for. So I'm all for it. Uh, we have uh, Kevin Woodley back. Uh, so under- My apologies, guys. I'm in Edmonton, and uh, there must be something about this city. Like, I don't know if they don't have cell reception. I'm actually in my hotel. So now I'm like up. I'm pressed up against the glass window of my hotel with my ear and i promise not to move when we talk so sorry about that it's all right josh tried to call the hotel and the phone line was actually worse than the cell phone i guess maybe yeah sounds like edmonton Edmonton. it does it does it does uh it leads i I believe it leads the north it leads canada in unpaved parking lot so i think that makes sense i mean um bob nicholson had it wrong he was blaming epcor for the water issue really it's telecommunications 
It is, and unpaid parking lots, which has been my pet peeve <laughs> since covering the 2006 Stanley Cup Finals for USA Today. There's just something about an unpaved parking lot that just doesn't sit well with me, and I, this is my first trip back since then, and I noticed there are a lot of them that are still unpaved. Maybe it's a winter thing, maybe I'm being mean, but it just, it's just... It's 2022, pay your parking lot. So, okay, I wanted to get your take on this. We're going to play the clip here on the show so that the listeners can hear it as well. When Jim Rutherford was on the Daily Faceoff uh, podcast the other day, they were asking him about new age goaltenders, what he sees, what he likes, what he doesn't like. And he mentioned something that I really wanted to get your take on. So here's the clip from Jim Rutherford. One of the things I don't like about the present goalies and – I know I've had some of the experts explain this to me. I'm not sure I buy it, but, you know, they're playing with that arm tucked inside the post all the time. And uh, and I just see so many shorthanded or short side goals go in now and leaking through that short side. I just think it's better having the arm outside the post, but only my opinion. So there is uh, Jim Rutherford. Agree, disagree? What? Uh, how do you feel about Jim Rutherford's take? Yeah, you know, it's funny because you guys, I was grateful that you sent me the clip and gave me the heads up because I listened to the whole thing and, and there was a bunch of caveats in there as well, um, you know, like uh, about like some of those mm-hmm. experts being in Clark and, and how much he values his opinion and stuff like that. So I don't think this is anything that anybody should be necessarily worried about. Um, like he said, like there's a reason that guys do it differently. It's also one of those things where there are probably situations where he's not wrong and goaltending is all about choosing the right safe selection in the right situation. So without, I, I don't want to be too critical of it because I don't know. It sounds like he's talking about post play because normally if you're squared up in a butterfly, your arms, not your, your, your feet are outside of your posts and your arms not inside. So I, I, it sounds to me like we're talking about dead angles and post play. And he's certainly right. Guys have got ripped short side, a lot short side high. Um, there are two things I would say. One would be if I place my arm outside my post, but I've got my skate and inside the post and the boot of my pad up against the post. Um, that's not obviously a good situation in terms of balance. Uh, sure, I've got a little bit more coverage by having my arm forward and outside the post, cutting down that angle ever so slightly, and it could make a difference. Um, but if that puck goes to the middle or if it's passed through the middle, if it hits a leg in the middle on a backdoor pass, um, my weight is now outside of my post which has taken away my leverage off that skate to push, right? Because I'm, I'm no longer, I've no longer got it loaded because my forward weight has taken, has sort of removed my ability to push into the middle off of that post. There's lots of different ways to, to sort of have this discussion. I think at the end of the day, the most important thing is, is if one of those experts he's talking to is Ian Clark, then the detail with which um, he would explain it uh, is just goes so far beyond what I, even what I just said. Like it's just it's next level, and I don't think there would be any argument or any worries about. I mean, Jim Rutherford's not coming down and telling the guys to start doing an overlap or start playing with their arm outside the post. I don't think we have to worry about that. So, um, and 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 on that note, like fascinatingly, like like literally, and I'm aware, obviously, and and have been a fan of Ian Clark for a long time, and I've been blessed to have a lot of discussions. Uh, uh, about the position and the evolution of it uh, with him, mm-hmm. but just happened to be in Montreal. Like I basically got home from Montreal at 11 p.m. last night and flew to Edmonton at 5 a.m. this morning. So I'm a little squirrely right now. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it was a, a goalie summit put on by CCM for three days that I was a guest at, and Ian was also a guest at it. And man, like 
we're talking about room full of like people who've been in the position for 30 years and just left jaws on the floor with the way he broke down and explained the position. Like I said, my answers for Jim Rutherford's, you know, theory on why it should be outside the post are so rudimentary compared to the level of detail that, and especially on Mm. post entries and why we go in the way we do and what coverage it creates and what delays it eliminates. Like that's the thing about Ian's teachings. And this goes back to me getting into goaltending by editing his old magazine, goalie news magazine. You had, you learned it by editing his stories. Goalies learn it when they work Mm -hmm. with him. It isn't, we do this because in Clark says so it's here's why. And if you listen to the why by the end of it, he, like he's got the PhD, you, you get a bachelor's because the level of detail and the way he explains it, it's, it's not just we do this, it's why we do this and why angle matters over depth. And it's just, it's broken down to the nth degree. And like I said, in Montreal, he left some, some eyes wide open and some jaws on the floor. And it's stuff I'd heard before. But in that type of presentation environment where it, where it's sort of neatly wrapped up in a bow, it was it was it was once again just compelling and eye opening to be a part of it. Is he the preeminent goalie coach in the league right now? Uh, it's a short list. Um, I mean, you never want to preclude Benoit Lair out mm-hmm. of any conversation with the New York Rangers, right? Like he's on that list. Um, you know, and and you know, you, Mitch Corn isn't a goaltending coach anymore. Uh, he's now a director of goaltending with the Islanders, and we'll see if that continues, you know, depending on where Barry goes um, and, and sort of what Mitch's future entails. But he's not actually on the ice coaching on a day-to-day basis anymore. But, like, those are those are the names that you put at the head of that class, the guys who are making, um, you know, not just differences with a goalie here and a goalie there, but, like, systemic top-to-bottom. They always produce and find and 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 get guys that end up being at the top of the league, whether it's Lundqvist to Shishterkin uh, with the Rangers, or if you look at, if you look at in's career, like he's, you know, he's been at it over 20 years and he's basically had four primary goaltenders, Roberto Luongo, Sergei Bobrovsky, Jacob Markstrom, and now Thatcher Demko. And, and those are names that, you know, when he was working with them and in their prime, like those are some of the best in the game. And that's, you know, there's a lot of other guys he's worked with uh, in, in lesser roles that have also will tell you some great things. There are guys he's worked with that, that, that you know, didn't buy in and didn't enjoy the process. But um, it's a pretty short list of guys that have that type of track record and, and are having the, the type of repeatable impact uh, year after year that Ian's having here. Well, the other, you know, in that um, interview, Rutherford said, you know, the, the position has evolved so much like I don't think there's a position in sport that has evolved as much as the hockey goaltender has no and it's going to need to evolve again right like it's going to need to continue evolving and that's because the shooters are finally going to school on what the goalies are doing the shooters are finally actually going to school in the summers right like after decades of bigger stronger faster uh, and work on my golf game in the summers the shooters are now working on their skills instead of just working on their physical attributes something goalies have done for 20 years and you know, as much as I think the the uptick in offense this year, um, and we've had this discussion, you know, can be tied to you know, rosters being depleted and guys being in roles they're not ready for, both goaltenders and the guys in front of them in a COVID, you know, manner that, that impact, the way that impacted the season and then the way the schedule impacted the season. You know, we're seeing some of it continue. We're seeing it continue more in the playoffs than I expected. Mm. I mean, the St. Louis Blues are exhibit A of a team that in the past – 
as poorly as they defended, I would have bet a lot of money on not making it out of the first round, and they did. And so as that trend continues, like I might end up having a grain of salt or eat the words I had about it, the offense this year being all about COVID and all about the schedule. Uh, and maybe we are seeing a shift in the dynamic here. And so goaltending will have to continue evolve to, to evolve to stay ahead of that. And that's, you know, that's the other thing. Like I've, like I said, I, I edited Ian's work 20 years ago. Um, I've worked with him or, or talked to him over the years since about various philosophies and theories. And then if you watch how he teaches post play now, like it's all completely evolved. It's totally different. If you were to have read his work, even, you know, five, 10 years ago to now, uh, it's changed as well. And it's the guys who, not just there's a lot of guys that keep up with it not all of them do it would surprise you at the nhl level how many maybe don't but most keep up with it there aren't many that are leading it the way you know Alaire and and ian clark lead it and mitch corn lead it from a development standpoint uh now kevin kind of turning our sights to some of the stuff happening in the postseason and it's been really interesting watching uh, uh, the net mining battle between the pipes for the St. Louis Blues this year. And all year we taught to talk about Willie Husso and how well he's played and, and Jordan Bennington. And you all, you always made it very clear that uh, the numbers at Clear Sites Analytics were kinder to Jordan Bennington than traditional save percentage was. And yeah. now he was terrific last night. But what is it about his game that shouldn't surprise people with how he's been playing right now? Well, I just think, like, like I don't know that it's so much about his game uh, and anything that's evolved or changed in it. Um, I do think he's got a game that is well-suited to this more dynamic NHL. Like, he holds his edges really well. Um, he stays over top of him. He's got a narrow stance. You watch how he doesn't get spread out and, and sort of locked in low and wide prematurely. Like, there are there were always a lot of elements of his game that should translate to this this style of attack that we're seeing in the NHL. To me, the biggest thing this year was just the underlying numbers and how low the expected save percentage was. And and, and it wasn't to take anything away from Billy Huso because his was low as well, which is why I didn't expect the St. Louis Blues to get out of the first round, which is why I didn't expect them to be a, a you know a good playoff team because they defended so poorly all year. And I and I think when you looked at those numbers, like as Billy Huso was full value for taking the job away in the regular season because he was that good. He as I've said before, like he was sort of having the season that a lot of people seem to believe Igor Shesterkin was having, or like not that Igor's was bad, but like Huso had the actual really, really bad defensive environment compared to Igor. Um, and, and Bennington wasn't as good as Huso during the regular season, but he was never bad. And he dipped a little bit, you know, as he lost his playing time and struggled maybe a little bit with losing the role. Um, but over the whole on a season, you know, he was still net positive. And for the first half of the season, even when a lot of the noise was surrounding him, he was not just net positive. He's like plus 1.2% on expected save percentage. Like he was, he was 12th or 13th in the league. Like he wasn't having this, oh my God, we signed him to an extension and now he sucks season that the narratives seemed to, you know, be, that was what seemed to surround him for a lot of this year. So um, I just didn't see a guy who'd forgotten how to play the game or who had lost his game. I saw a guy in a really tough defensive environment, a lot tougher than the one he won a cup in, um, who was, yeah, he was getting outplayed by Huso, but I just didn't see a guy whose game had completely abandoned him. And, and so, um, you know, it's early in the second round, but the potential for this Jordan Bennington, it was never that far away this season. It was certainly never as far away as a lot of people would have you believe, or maybe the raw numbers would indicate. Kevin, we appreciate the time. Thanks for this today. Yeah, sincere apologies for the phone issues, guys. I got to get the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Thanks for this.
Thanks. Uh, there's uh, Kevin Woodley looking for the uh, next exit out of Edmonton. While everybody else is in Calgary, mm-hmm. Kevin Woodley is in Edmonton. Oh, but hey, you went for a good thing. Uh, some good insight there to the Goldie Conference that he's been attending. Um, it's fascinating, some of those uh, goalie takes from Kevin Woodley. Uh, love getting his take on on just the the tactics of playing the position and stuff we're lucky to have every Wednesday here on Canuck Central. Coming up, we'll dive into, um, well, a lot of the NHL playoffs with Colby Armstrong, also his take on the next steps for the Pittsburgh Penguins. Stan Richo, Satyar Shah, this is Canuck Central.